You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Bernard Cornwell back on the show with me uh, to talk about the 13th Saxon Tales book. It's called Warlord, and uh, this is an epic conclusion to this series, which I'm a little sad um, to, to know that this is the conclusion of the series, but also really excited to see how you wrap up this epic tale. Uh, welcome back to the show, Mr. Cornwell. Oh, thank you, Hank. It's nice to be with you. So, um, Mr. Cornwell, I've been talking to uh, authors over the last couple of months, uh, especially about the the interesting times that we find ourselves in this year and uh, <laughs> how how COVID has affected writers and, and creative people in general, because most of us tend to work from our home office and it's just us and a computer, or us and a, a notepad or whatever it is that we write with. And, uh, you know, we're not known to be overly um, gregarious people, shall we say. Um, how has this time affected you? And uh, what what has this year been like for you and your process? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, writing is a solitary vice. Um, and I have to say, I've hardly noticed the COVID. I mean, apart from the fact that it's been hard not seeing friends, we haven't been able to travel much. But, uh, I mean, every day I come to this office and I sit down and I write. It really doesn't matter whether there's COVID or not. It's the same every day. So I've, I have to say I've been very lucky. Well, I know for, uh, for someone like you, you were uh, born and reared in England, uh, but now live in the United States. And when you're writing an historical series like the Saxon Tales series, um, how much... Um, on-site research do you depend on and and has have you been able um to carry out the types of research that you would normally do this year well not this year but last year i managed to do the research that was necessary for warlord um the book ends as you know in a, an enormous battle called the battle of brunenberg right and curiously although this is an incredibly important battle in english history People had completely forgotten where it was fought. In fact, most people didn't even know it was fought. And then about two years ago, some archaeologists claimed to have discovered the battle site. And so last summer, I went over and toured the area with them. And I'm sure they have discovered it. And so that was the only research I needed to do. If if I'd had to do more, um, I'd have been stuck because of COVID. How much um, modern technology? Uh, gets to play into the research that you do is uh, are things like Google Maps or um, things like that are they beneficial in any way? Google Maps can be hugely useful. Um, um, I mean, it's curious, isn't it? The internet. I mean, we used to say that if you gave a thousand monkeys typewriters and just let them loose, that eventually one of them would write the sonnets of Shakespeare. Well, it's not true. <laughs> right. They actually write the internet. 
Um, <laughs> and you have to be incredibly careful about what you discover. But it can be hugely useful. I'm writing a new book at the moment, which is set in 1815. And I wanted to set a scene in a little country town in France called Ham. And I knew there'd been a citadel there. And I couldn't visit because of COVID. So I went onto Google and Google Maps and found an aerial view of the remnants of this citadel. And you can use the little device on maps to measure distance. And I was able to get the exact dimensions of the courtyard where something important happens. So that was hugely useful. And you can trust that because it's a satellite picture. Um, not one of the things that the monkeys wrote. How, um, you know, when you're writing a series like this um, and, and telling um, real historical facts and events, um, but embellishing them uh, for for the reader's sake, because you know the the farther we get away from a historical event, the less we we know about it, and and therefore the less we teach about it in in schools and and things like that. And so much of history just gets lost because there's just not enough time to cover everything, um, and and historical events get reduced down to bullet points uh, that that get you know. Um, conveyed in a classroom and and we really have no context and we have no idea about the people we just we maybe have an event or two that we remember um what was it about this period in time that that fascinated you and when did you realize that this was you know there was more to be uncovered than we typically know or teach now but well, I think what fascinated me was the realization that the English, and as you say, I grew up in England and I was educated there, have no idea how England came to be. I mean, how, how did a country called England start in the first place? And that's the big story, if you like, behind the 13 books. And it ended at this battle, the Battle of Brunenburg. Um, and most English people have never, ever heard of that battle. They had no idea. And yet you could say, and it wouldn't be too much of a stretch, that it's the equivalent to England of the Battle of Yorktown to America. On the morning of the battle, there was no country called England, and that evening there was. And that seemed an important story to tell in how a country comes into existence. So that was really, if you like, the driving force behind the books, but most historical novels have a big story and a little story. The big story is the real history, the events of history. I mean, in Gone with the Wind, it's the Civil War. The little story is the story you make up and lay on top of it. Um, and in Gone with the Wind, it's Can Scarlet Save Tara? And I didn't have a little story until I met my real father for the very first time. It was very late in life. I was in my 50s and discovered that I was descended from a warrior called Uhtred, who'd held a fortress in northern England right through the Viking invasions. And I thought, aha, there's a story there. So in the end, I told a story that I made up about a real ancestor of mine. And he, poor man, has to go to this big battle. <laughs> Did when you when you first started conceiving of this series, um, did you have an overarching plan? Did you know where the, 
the series was going. And uh, of course, we have actual historical events that you are writing around and, and probably toward. Um, but, you know, there are interesting character things that happen with this band of characters that you've set the stage with. Um, did you have a plan for them for the beginning? Oh, I wish I did. Um, <laughs> I've never been able to plan a book, let alone a series. The one thing I knew was that it would end with the Battle of Brunenburg. That was it. That whatever book I wrote was headed towards that. And by this time, my hero is getting much too old. But um, he had to be there. Um, but I needed to write about Alfred the Great because in many ways, England was his dream. He didn't live to see the dream come true. Um, he died 38 years before the battle. Um, but I wanted to have Alfred in the books. But no, I wish I had a plan. I just can't. I mean, I can't plan a book. I can't plan a chapter. I, mean, I always like to think that the joy of reading a novel is to find out what happens. For me, that's the joy of writing it, to find out what happens. So it, that being the case, um, if we were writing a completely fictionalized novel where uh, it was all the, the product of your imagination, um, I think a lot of people could could completely wrap their head around that. There's lots of writers that write by the seat of their pants, as we like to say. Um, but when you're writing historical fiction and there are actual events that that you need to get to and and to cover, um, how, do, how does that work in the writing of a novel for you? Well, you have to make that background as authentic as possible. Um, right. I mean, one of the things about, let's just take the Battle of Brunenburg, is we know very little about it. I mean, so little that people completely forgot where it was even fought. Um, and most you know, say that 99% of the British have not heard of the people who led forces into that battle. And even though we have descriptions of it in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, in fact, in a lot of chronicles, those descriptions tell us very little. Um, they don't tell us where it was fought. They don't tell how it was fought. Um, and much of the description is myth mythological. Uh, I mean, in the battle, the English leader, King Athelstan, lost his sword. And the chronicles tell us that a bishop performed a miracle to get him another sword. Well, if you believe in miracles, you can believe that story. Otherwise, we have to find another explanation for it. So, I mean, the nice thing about writing about the distant past is that I can make it up. It's my job to make it up. But we try as hard as possible to keep that fictional stuff as authentic as possible. Um, in a in a series that you wrote, um, the Sharp series, which is uh, in uh, Napoleonic and during the Napoleonic Wars, um, you had even though this is also an historical novel and and a few hundred years old, there are certain elements of modern life that you get to lean on and and to use in in the the telling of this story when you're when you're dealing with the saxon tales um the technologies are are very different and in lots <laughs> of ways do, do you ever find yourself wanting to um to to get them out of trouble um using more modern means and and how do you how do you ground yourself in in the the technology and the lifestyle of the time i think by immersing yourself in that research um I mean, no, you couldn't, you can't cheat. And it would, right. be, it would be very tempting to give Uhtred a Bren gun at some point, but no, you can't do it. Um, I mean, 
I've been reading about the Saxons for 50 years. And if you like, all that research goes into it, in a sense, an understanding of how they lived, what they ate, what they wore. Uh, and I don't find it difficult to be constrained by that. Uh, I, I mean, I hope I'm not cheating, but I'm sure I have occasionally. I'm not sure. What things have surprised you? I know that you said you've been reading about the Saxons for 50 years, um, but did you uncover anything in the writing of this series that uh, that took you by surprise or uh, maybe new archaeology that's that's gone on in, in the subsequent years that we now know more about this period? That was, was there anything that, that got your attention and surprised you? I can't think, say that anything totally surprised me. I mean, a lot impressed me. I mean, the technology of Viking shipbuilding is incredibly impressive. And I suppose I was slightly surprised to find out that, in fact, that technology was shared. It was, if you like, a Northern European technology. I mean, not just the Vikings built those wonderful ships, but the Frisians did, and so did the Saxons. Um, but no, I can't say anything totally surprised me. Um, I mean, sure, some of the... Customs are strange to us. There is a thing called were guilt. And if you were found guilty of a murder, you had to pay money to the family of the person you had murdered. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is maybe not such a bad idea, but were guilt, of course, totally depended on the social rank of the victim. So if you killed a nobleman, the were guilt was going to be absolutely appalling. If you couldn't pay it, you were probably put to death. If you kill someone's slave, you hand it over a few pence. Um, so there were things like that, which just seem strange to us today. Um, but beyond that, no. A hitman with a conscience. Ian Bragg is paid to kill people. Only bad people and not many, but for a great deal of money. Case the target. Make the hit. Move on. Until he meets the woman with sparkling green eyes who changes everything. A few pre-readers had this to say about Ian Bragg. Mark Dawson, million-selling thriller author, says a rip-roaring ride from start to breathless finish. Craig Martell hit a home run with the operator. The taut, lean prose and lightning-fast pace make this a page-turner without sacrificing an ounce of story or depth. You'll find yourself rooting for the hitman main character as he faces the toughest decision of his career. The Operator is the start of a new thriller series I expect to see burning up bestseller list for years to come, says A.C. Fuller, author of The Crime Beat and Alex Vane Media Thrillers. Suave, romantic, and lethal, Ian Bragg is everything you want in a highly paid assassin. Can't wait to ride this train, says James Blatch, self-publishing formula. It's been a long time since I fell this hard in love with a book, a very long time. Author of Women of Wine County Romantic Suspense, Terry Wells Brown says, Grab this book from Craig Martell, The Operator. Both Barrels Publishing is the brainchild of successful indie author James P. Sumner. He has self-published over 15 titles in the last five years and has over 800,000 downloads so far in his career, meaning he has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share with the indie publishing community. Knowing the struggles of the modern-day indie author as well as he does, he wanted to create a platform that would allow writers of any level 
to learn the ropes, navigate the pitfalls, and produce a professional novel without wasting time or money in the process. Both Barrels Publishing is the perfect one-stop shop for any indie author, combining James's expertise with his own team of editors and designers so you can help your novel realize its full potential and learn how to publish yourself. The purpose of Both Barrels Publishing is to help indie authors get their novels ready for publication without all the stress, hassle, and unnecessary expense. We want to make your lives easier, which is why we're giving you access to a top-notch team to publish your novels, along with a generous discount on their services. You can also work one-on-one with James to learn the intricacies of self-publishing. No hidden cost, no false promises. We simply want you to publish the best version of your novel. BothBarrelsPublishing.com What's what's really um, fascinating to me is as you dig more into the history of this time period and see how um, uh, how uh, countries and, and governments are formed. And you, you think back, um, uh, you know, that y- you think of, of British history and, and you think of one very particular specific thing. And the, the reality was there, there was a lot of melding and merging of different cultures and, and, and things that came in. Um, what, what was one of the fun, what, what was the most fun um, uh, people to, to learn about for you as, as you started digging into this, this time period and, and this series? Well, I suppose it has to be the Vikings, yeah. um, who play an enormous part in British history because they were immigrants. And not only were they immigrants taking away land from the Saxons, but they were also pagans. And this, if you like, made the, the war. And this is a war that went on for 40 years, if not longer, um, even more bitter, because as far as the Saxons were concerned, it was a crusade to, to convert the Vikings. Indeed, King Alfred always reckoned that a man who is his enemy, if that enemy converted to Christianity, he ceased to be an enemy. Um, because Alfred's dream was to make one kingdom of people who spoke the English tongue, but he was also insistent that it should be a Christian country. And what made that difficult for him is that three quarters of the country had been invaded by pagan Vikings. Um, But the Vikings, I mean, there is a certain romantic image about them, and I confess that I probably succumb to that image a bit. but the Vikings are fascinating people and absolutely fascinating. And if you look at a map of Britain today and you draw a line from the sort of top left down to the bottom right, everything to the right of that line is filled with Viking names. Um, everything to the left of it are just good old-fashioned British but English names. So the Vikings, these immigrants, had an enormous impact on the history of Britain. I mean, not only did they come, they intermarried, they settled, but their place names, a lot of their language went into English. Every time you talk about a skirt or a knife, you're actually using a Viking word. Um, So they had an immense impact on the history of Britain um, and on our language and on our culture. Speaking of, of Vikings and uh, uncovering some of their history and, and seeing um, how their um, their lives uh, affected how we now 
think of modern life. What do you think about um, new television shows like uh, I think it's the History Channel that does the Viking show? Um, do, do you think those things um, help uh, our understanding or um, how do you feel about some of the, the new uh, resurgence of historical fiction in those ways? I think it's I think it's good because historical fiction, I mean, whether it's a novel or whether it's a TV series, is if you like a gateway to history. And I mean, when I was a kid, I read the books of C.S. Forrester, the Hornblower books. Right. And I ran off, you know, with, I think there were 11 of them. And suddenly when I was 14 or 15, that was it. There were no more to read. So the only thing to do was to go to the real history. And I don't think I'd be a writer today if I hadn't done that. So I think the great value of them is they do introduce people to history and then they can go and find the books that will tell them more. So I'm all for it. Right. Well, speaking of, of television, um, this series that we're, we're talking about today, that Warlord is the, the final chapter of, um, is a very popular uh, television series. been made into, uh, for the BBC originally, I believe, and now Netflix uh, is how we watch it here in the States. Um, one, uh, what do you feel about the reception that this show has gotten? And, uh, and, and I know that you've even had some cameos on the show. Um, has the, the television series affected the writing, uh, of these last few books for you? No, I can't say it has. I mean, I'd like to think that if it did, it would be a good effect. Um, I mean, God bless them. The Netflix series is at the moment, uh, I think they're about to start filming the fifth series, but they're still on the early book, which was written 10 years ago, if not wrong. Right. And by the time I wrote Warlord, you know, I hear it was already way older than that. Um, I mean, I love the series. And of course, I did The Last Kingdom. Um, and I just hope it keeps going right through to the to the so this is the 13th uh, book in the series. Where, where do we find Uhtred? And uh, what's, kind of set the stage for us for this book, please. Well, to understand the creation of England, you have to go back to the Anglo-Saxon invasions, which started in the 5th century, 4th century. And by the time the books begin, the series begin, there are four kingdoms which nowadays make up England. You have Wessex in the south, and then to the east you have East Anglia, and then above Wessex is Mercia, and right in the north is Northumbria. And when Warlord starts, the lower three kingdoms, East Anglia, Mercia, and Wessex, have more or less been united into one kingdom, um, which is, if you like, proto-England. But there's going to be a huge battle to decide who rules Northumbria. And King Athelstan, who was Alfred's grandson, is determined that Northumbria will be part of England. Uh, meanwhile, the Scots want Northumbria to be part of Scotland, and the Irish Vikings also claim to be the kings of Northumbria. So, you know, the scene is set for a pretty massive battle. Um, so, in a sense, Northumbria has become the last kingdom. It's the last extant kingdom which rules itself instead of being part of a much larger kingdom. Um, and Uhtred is a lord of Northumbria, but he's never quite sure who he should fight for. <laughs> it's, it's really, um, he, he's a prototypical um, kind of 
torn character where he he's not exactly sure where his allegiances lie and that makes for for great character development yeah i mean he he's a saxon and he knows that but he was raised by vikings and he became very very fond of the vikings who raised him so he has if you like an immense sympathy for the vikings even though they are the ultimate enemy who he has to fight um, but his great advantage is he was taught to fight by the Vikings. Talking about this this giant final battle, um, you are known for uh, the battles that you write and and bringing um, it a realism to them that uh, that is uh, you know makes for page turners. Um, how do you how do you approach writing a battle like this, and and do you? Uh, you know, do you conceptualize in your mind and uh, do you then, you know, take the, the big events and then break down how your characters are going to work into that? Like, how do you approach when you come up to uh, an epic uh, portion of the writing like this? <laughs> well, you begin by setting the scene. Um, you begin by so that the reader knows what the ground is like, where the battle is being fought. If the reader doesn't understand the geography, then he's not going to follow, she's not going to follow the battle. Sure. But after that, it's very much seeing the battle through the eyes of the individual characters. And it's not just what they see, it's what they hear, what they smell, what they do. And so most of the battle, if you like, is fought in close-up. Uh, I mean, the close-up of Uhtred's point of view. Um, and these were horrific, absolutely horrific battles. I mean, they all come down to what were called shield walls. And a shield wall is just, just that. It's a long line of men carrying shields that make a kind of wall, and you have to attack. So the battle is going to be fought at arm's length, if not closer. Um, and at that point, yes, it's very much imagining, well, what are they seeing? What are they hearing? What are they feeling? What are they smelling? Because the smells would be unbelievable. Um, and occasionally, if you like, taking a wide shot in sort of cinematic terms where you can show what else is happening on the battlefield. But I don't want to say that writing battles is easy, but there's always a relief when you come to a battle because you know that you've got a lot to write about for the next two or three chapters. Right. When when writing a series as big as this one is, 13 books, and, and then you take the Sharp series, which I believe is more than 20 books. It's 21. Um, yeah, 21. Uh, how do you manage that? Uh, you, because they're full of characters with their own stories and arcs, and um, you, how do you remember where you left a character? Do, do you have some sort of uh, organization process that you use oh, for I tracking characters? I wish I did. Oh, I wish I did. <laughs> Um, no, I don't. I mean, when I was writing The Last Kingdom, what I did was I put every new book was added to a file on my computer. Um, so by the time I wrote Warlord, there were 12 books, which I think were over 3 million words. I can't remember now. Mm. And so when I came to a character, I would just do one of those search things on the computer and see what I'd said about them before. And I did get a message from a reader saying, oh, you've got this character in Warlord, you killed him off in whatever book it was, and I missed it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, but <laughs> he wasn't very important, so I don't think it matters that much. Um, and sadly, I don't have that same thing with the Sharp book. I didn't think to do that. And 
so I never know quite what a character did. I have to hunt through the old books and see if I can find that find them. But I wish there was organization in this office, but there isn't. <laughs> when you add 12 previous books uh, into one word processor file, does, does your computer ever bog down and, and say, oh my gosh, what are you asking me to do? No, my computer is as trusty as Uhtred's sword. It has never let me down yet. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, Mr. Cornwell, what, what's coming next from you? Uh, you know, when finishing a, a series like this, um, does your mind, are you thinking about new worlds and, and, and new points of history? What, what gets well, your am. ears turning now? I am thinking about that, but not yet, because I've always wanted to write another shark book, number 22. So I've gone back to him, and uh, right now I'm back with Sharp, and having that problem you described, I mean, of thinking, okay, I need this character, and I don't remember what I did with him, and, you know, did I kill him off? Um, so I spent a long time going through all the Sharp books and making up a spreadsheet with all the names of the characters and who was dead, who was alive. I hope it, I'm not bringing back anybody who I killed 10 books ago. What, what is it about this time period the sh the, that the Sharp books take place in that fascinates you so? Well, I think that all began with Hornblower, the, the books I read as a child. Um, and in many ways, the Napoleonic Wars were enormously important in British history. Uh, obviously, when you go through London, you have Trafalgar Square and Waterloo Station. I mean, they made a huge impact, and they were incredibly exciting. Um, so the Napoleonic Wars provide this, if you like, enormous source of real stories on the, the, the fictional story of Shah. It's just a period I enjoy, I suppose. It's nice being back there. I, I'll bet it is. Uh, when can we expect to see a, a 22nd book in that series? Well, I'm hopeful that it'll be finished in April, so it'll come out about a year from now. That's, when, when, you're, when you say that you're hopeful that it'll be finished in April, um, what sort of daily writing habit do you allow for yourself to, when, when you have deadlines, whether they're self-imposed or, or um, you know, publisher-imposed? Um, <laughs> well, how do you maintain your daily writing? The deadline is usually April. Um, that suits the publisher. I just sit down and do it. Um, I mean, I don't set a number of words to do each day. I mean, some days I'll write one page, other days I'll write six pages. Um, and this is partly the problem of not planning a book, because I can't. And I write it to find out what happens, and then very often you get halfway through the book and you think, oh, that's what the book is about, not what I thought it was. Then you have to go back to the beginning and rewrite it. Um, so there's a lot of that going on, a lot of rewriting. Um, but I enjoy it. I mean, I think it's the best job in the world. I get, you know, I sit down and tell stories all day. I live in Cape Cod, which is a nice place to live, and I tell stories. It's wonderful. It's a pretty great existence, isn't it? It is indeed. <laughs> well, Mr. Cornwell, um, I know everyone's excited for the 13th Saxon Tales book. Warlord is out available everywhere now, whether you prefer it in hardback edition or kindle edition or audiobook um it's available everywhere today we're going to put links to it in the show notes of this episode to make it easy for people to find uh mr cornwell where can people find you online if they want to dig into all the great stuff that you do 
Well, I got a website. I think it's called BernardCornwell.net. I think. Um, so they can find me there. Google it. Good old Google. The monkeys will give you something. <laughs> That's right. Well, we'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. Uh, Mr. Cornwell, thank you so much for not only for the books and the hours of entertainment that you've provided to all of us, uh, but uh, but thank you for taking time to come back on the show today. Hank, it was a great pleasure as ever talking to you. Thank you. On an isolated human planet called Phoenix, outside the Galactic Gate Network, a royal empire teeters on the brink of revolution. The new emperor is weak, the old guard seeks power, and a hidden slave cabal manipulates the great and small houses alike. None of this concerns Simeon Brazhnev, newly appointed steward to one of the most powerful heiresses on the planet. Happy to let the royals play their age-old game of catch the crown, Simeon is more concerned with balancing his mistress's books than worrying about affairs of state. But when Simeon discovers evidence of sedition at the highest levels of government buried deep within her finances, he realizes her great peril. Though a slave, he finds himself trapped in political intrigue, desperate to protect his mistress from the royals who would see her dead and the slave rebels who would make her their pawn. Agonized by the choice of turning her over to the authorities or protecting her secrets, Simeon decides to keep faith with his sovereign over his larger duty, thus flinging himself into a world of power, plot, and assassination. If he fails, they both die, and with them the chance at freedom for Simeon's enslaved race. Set in the Salvage title universe, Salvage Mind is the first of three novels in a new breakout series. Available in ebook format and paperback, grab your copy today. Salvage Mind by David Allen Jones. Bone Thief, John Driscoll Book One by Thomas O'Callaghan. A sociopathic killer is using the internet to lure seemingly random women to their gruesome deaths in New York City. During his heinous murder spree, this madman is extracting the bones of his victims. His sheer brutality has the residents of the Big Apple in panic mode. Who is this twisted psycho who's abducted a housewife in broad daylight only to dispose of her lifeless body alongside a lake in Prospect Park, nailed the boneless remains of a nameless drifter to the underside of a boardwalk at Rockaway Beach, allowed the gutted corpse of a single parent to wash ashore under the Brooklyn Bridge, and has had the audacity to leave the desecrated body of the Magnolia Tea heiress rotting atop trash at one of the city's sanitation dumps. NYPD's top cop, Homicide Commander John W. Driscoll, has never witnessed such savagery. Hammered daily by the district attorney, the mayor, and the police commissioner, the lieutenant, who's battling his own inner demons, must use every resource available to put an end to the killings. In a race against time, Driscoll, aided by Sergeant Alagante and Detective Cedric Tomlinson, sets out on a roller coaster of an investigation to first identify the villainous fiend and then put an end to his butchering. Grab Bone Thief by Thomas O'Callaghan now.